This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kenny, and I'm excited to be back with you guys this week. Now, uh, this week's topic is actually one that took place um, a couple weeks ago, but it was a busy time for me, so it kind of got put on the back burner. But it's actually really interesting, and I think it's actually a pretty important topic too, and that is the reemergence of the ISIS leader, the Islamic State leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, he emerged in a video that, that appeared on, I believe it was April 29th, and it was the first time that he had appeared in a video in five years, and so it was a pretty big deal. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about him, we're going to be talking about that video, kind of what that means going forward. And so let's go ahead and dive right in. I want to start off with talking about Baghdadi himself, and then we'll get into the, the uh, actual video and what that might mean for the organization, but also kind of for the future of, of the region too. Uh, so Abu Bakir al-Baghdadi, uh, that's not actually his his birth name. He was actually had a different name, Ibrahim al-Badri. Uh, but he, was, he has been the leader of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, or Iraq and Al-Sham, which is ISIS, same organization, just different names for it. But it's a terrorist organization. For those of you who don't know, it was designated a terrorist organization by the United States, by the EU, by the UN, by a ton of other countries as well. And so he is the formal leader of this group and has been since April of 2013. Now, Baghdadi is, as I said, he's, this is not his real name or his birth name. He's had a lot of different names over the years. Uh, you may have heard him called Abu Dua, uh, Al-Shabaa. Uh, Al-Qureshi was one at one point. Uh, Caliph Abu Bakir, Caliph al-Baghdadi, Caliph Ibrahim. Uh, and he's also had a lot of aliases too that he has used to to move around in the in the Middle East. Now he was originally from Iraq, uh, believed to have been born in 1971, which makes him uh, I believe 46. No, about, sorry, 47 to 48 years old. Uh, he had three other brothers, and he was born as a member of a specific tribal group called the Abu Badri tribe. Now, this tribe has a lot of different branches to it, and it's kind of hard to, to trace back. But that's important to know because Baghdadi has later claimed in his adult life that he is, de is descended from one very specific tribe called the Quraysh tribe, Q-U-R-A-Y-S-H, uh, Quraysh. I'm probably butchering that a little bit. But the important thing is that particular tribe is, is descended directly from Muhammad, who is the kind of father of Islam. And so he actually claims to be a direct descendant of Muhammad, which is what gives him, he claims, some of the authority to rule this organization and this group. Now, there's actually not a ton known about Baghdadi's family. Uh, both his father and his grandfather are supposed to have been farmers. But his father also did some sort of religious teaching. He started as a teacher teaching the Quran to, to children. One of Baghdadi's uncles actually served under Saddam Hussein in the security services of Iraq. Another one of his brothers became an officer in the Iraqi army. 
a different brother actually probably died during one of the wars while serving in the Iraq military, probably either the Iran-Iraq War or the Gulf War. And so he has some pretty direct ties to kind of Iraqi government forces, Iraqi military, and even, you know, directly in line with, with Saddam Hussein, uh, with some of his family serving in the security services there as well. Now, there's not a ton known about these brothers. Uh, I believe there was one, some person who was able to name them, but beyond that, it's very up in the air. One of the brothers actually supposedly acts as a bodyguard now for, for Baghdadi, but there's not a lot known about kind of his early life. Now, Baghdadi did go to, to school in the area. Uh, he actually tried to join the Iraqi military under Saddam, uh, but was turned down because uh, supposedly he's very nearsighted. And so he was deemed unfit for military service. And he was not the best student either. His grades were not good enough for him to get into what he wanted to study at the University of Baghdad, uh, which was like law and languages and that, those sorts of things. So it's believed that he in instead went to the Islamic University of Baghdad, which is now called the Iraqi University, uh, where he studied Islamic law and the Quran. So instead of kind of going kind of the law, educational sciences, languages route, he actually goes kind of to a very religious school and studies there. Now, it's thought that he actually did become quite well educated, uh, potentially even getting a, a doctorate in Islamic studies or, or Quranic studies from Saddam University in Baghdad. And so it is quite possible, and actually, according to these reports, quite likely that he is considered a doctorate, in addition to a bachelor's and a master's, so he is quite well educated. Now, personally speaking, though, he is thought to have been very shy kind of growing up. As I said, his grades weren't good. He was kind of an un unimpressive young man, religious scholar, kind of all the stereotypes that go along with that. And it's in those early years, he actually was very anti-violence. Uh, there was some of his like friends or contemporaries who grew up with him you know, in his youth, they gave an interview a handful of years ago, and they basically described him as somebody who was very anti-violence. And so the, the, the shift somehow took place later in life where he became much more radical and extremist. Now, there's not a lot that's known about how he got from this kind of almost invisible or unrecognized, very quiet religious scholar to becoming a, a revolutionary and an extremist and a terrorist. Uh, but we do know that he eventually kind of crops up again later after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. Al-Baghdadi actually helps found a group called Jamaat Jaish Ahi al-Sunno Wa'i Jamaa. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but J-J-A-S-J. -J -J. And he actually was, was one of the leaders of this organization. It's a very uh, militant extremist group. So by 2003, after the U.S. invasion, he is now known for being very extremist. Now, his group joined the, the Mujahideen Shura Council in 2006, which is kind of a, a, um, a larger scale, like umbrella organization of several Sunni Islamic insurgent groups that took part in the Iraqi insurgency against kind of U.S. forces, as well as the Iraqi and other coalition forces. So they joined this organization. And then in 2006, that M MSC, the Mujahideen Shura Council, renames itself the Islamic State of Iraq. And Baghdadi becomes a supervisor of, of a couple of their different committees and councils within this. Now, Baghdadi is actually really interesting because he actually was in custody of U.S. forces in Iraq in 2004. 
he was arrested. He was visiting uh, the home of kind of an old friend who was also on the Americans' like most wanted list at the time. And they had studied together. And so they, they had long history. And he got arrested while visiting this home with a friend. And he was detained at Abu Ghraib. You probably are familiar with that from the later scandals there. Uh, also Camp Buka, which is a different detention center. And he was seen as a civilian internee was his official title. But basically, he was under kind of a medium security compound at the time. Now, he was in custody for about 10 months or so, but ultimately was released as a prisoner because he was deemed as being low-level and and unimportant. Uh, Very ironic, considering what he he becomes later on, and probably something that should have raised some questions as to the way that we evaluate these prisoners, because this is not the only time that we have had prisoners in custody, released them, and had them become more radical and come back to bite us later on. Now, a few years after he gets released, again, he's released reportedly in kind of December of 2004. He goes back and joins the Islamic State of Iraq. This is also known as kind of the Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They're actually a branch of Al-Qaeda at this point, the Iraqi kind of division or franchise of sorts of Al-Qaeda. And so he joins this group again, and he becomes announced formally as the leader of the ISI in May of 2010. And as the leader of the ISI, he becomes responsible for masterminding a lot of their attacks during this time period. There's the 2011 suicide bombing of a mosque in Baghdad. There were dozens of other attacks kind of around the Baghdad area. There was an attack in a city called Hilla, which killed, uh, I believe, 24 policemen and was targeting okay, infrastructure and police in uh, May of 2011. Attacks in Mosul. There's a whole wave of suicide attacks later in 2011. And following the death of the founder of Al-Qaeda, a man you're probably most very familiar with, Osama bin Laden, there are a series of retaliatory attacks from the ISI who had pledged to carry out, I believe, 100 attacks across Iraq, from suicide attacks to roadside bombs to, to other types of, of attack as well, car bombings, uh, IEDs. And so ISI claims a lot of credit for a variety of attacks that take place across Iraq during this time period. Now, in 2012, a report surfaces that Iraqi officials claim they've captured al-Baghdadi. They've been tracking him for a couple months. Uh, They captured him. They captured a list of names and locations. However, ultimately, it turns out that they grabbed the wrong person. And so there was actually a brief period, uh, like a week or so, where we thought Baghdadi was in custody, but it turns out they had actually grabbed a different commander in charge who happened to look very similar, and he managed to escape arrest at that point in time. Now, still through all this time period, ISI is still formally part of Al-Qaeda, but this changes in 2013, April of 2013. Al-Baghdadi decides to kind of formally expand the organization into Syria, and he announces the formation of what he calls at the time the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, uh, which is also translated as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or the Islamic State in Iraq and al-Sham, ISIL, ISIS, they're all the same thing. Now, during this time period as well, we see that ISIS splits from al-Qaeda, and they become their own distinct organization. Uh, And by February of 2014, al-Qaeda has completely disavowed ISIS in addition. And there's a lot of reasons for this. This is probably something I could do a whole episode on where we talk ISIS and and all all kind of the differences of some of these groups. But essentially, there's there's a handful of reasons. Uh, Mostly, there's some, some theological differences where ISIS believes that the Armageddon of sorts within Islam is coming much more rapidly and a little bit more poignantly 
driven by the organization, as in they're written into the Quran as playing key part in the apocalypse, whereas Al-Qaeda does not. But then there's also some disagreement, let's say, about the methods that they're going about. Al-Baghdadi was seen at the time, especially by Al-Qaeda, as being more about seeking fame, seeking, I guess you say, infamy, but making a name for himself, a little bit more on, on the side of trying to be a thrill seeker. There's a, a couple of different reasons that people get engaged in terrorism. And again, this could be a whole other episode in and of itself. But one of them is thrill seeking. And, and the basic principle here is that some people join these organizations because they love the thrill of the danger that it brings about. And so it's thought that Baghdadi created some enemies within Al-Qaeda because some of his actions, going back to when they were a part of Al-Qaeda, were seen as a little bit more self-serving than they were organization serving. And beyond that too, it's thought that Al-Qaeda thought ISIS was going a little too far with some of their, their activity. ISIS reinstitutes slave markets. They reintroduce crucifixion as a punishment. And Al-Qaeda is not particularly happy about some of this. And so February of 2014, they completely disavow any sort of relationship with ISIS. And from this point on, al-Baghdadi is the caliph or the um, the leader of ISIS. Now, the, the caliph part actually comes a few months later. In June of 2014, ISIS announces that they're establishing a worldwide caliphate with Baghdadi as the leader. And this is where it gets known as caliph or caliph Ibrahim or caliph al-Baghdadi, etc. And this is also where we see the debate, or I should say the, uh, the renaming of the group, just the Islamic State. Now, this declaration of, of a caliphate becomes heavily criticized by pretty much everybody involved, uh, Middle Eastern governments, other extremist groups, theologians, historians, uh, broadcasters, television anchors, pretty much everybody criticizes this move at the time. But al-Baghdadi is very firm in this, and he starts marching kind of across the area. Uh, he actually announces that they're going to march on Rome, which is probably an allusion to the West and more in generally, uh, just more more um, metaphorically, I should say, to try to establish kind of an Islamic state across Europe and ultimately the world. He talks about Spain as well, specifically. They get involved with media. They create an online magazine. I'm getting a little off track here, getting into the group more than Baghdadi. But Baghdadi himself is thought to have been, or he, he believes that he is one of the formal caliphs of 12er Islam, or the, the 12, where they believe there's going to be 12 uh, caliphs, of, like formal caliphs from Muhammad until the end times uh, that are official. And so he actually is rumored to have kind of been styling himself after the very first one, Abu Bakr, who, if you get, get a little bit of Islamic history, but he's the one who replaced Muhammad as the prayer leader when Muhammad became very ill. And so he is thought to, on, on kind of the Sunni side anyway, this is actually a disagreement between Shias and Sunnis, but Abu Bakr is the successor to Muhammad. And so it's thought that Baghdadi is kind of styling himself theologically, methodologically after this first caliph, Abu Bakr. This is also where you get his, his now name, what he's known by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. All right, now we're going to go ahead and take a short break for commercials. Uh, and I'll be back with you guys on the other side. And we're going to talk more about this video and some, some of his public appearances and what this means going forward for the organization. Uh, so just hang with me for a little bit and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute or so. 
Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. We're going to go ahead and dive right back in. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about al-Baghdadi specifically, but now I want to talk a little bit about uh, this video that came out just recently because this is a, a pretty big deal. It's the first time we have seen him in a long time. It's actually the very first time that he, we've seen his face in any sort of form in five years. So back in 2014, as I said, he kind of declared himself ruler of the caliphate. And since that time, he's helped ISIS commit mass killings, terrorist attacks across the Middle East, specifically Iraq and Syria, but he's also inspired attacks across the world. Uh, he's probably the most wanted man in the world right now. The U.S. has actually offered $25 million for anybody who can provide information on his whereabouts to, to track him down and, and stop him. So the last time that we saw al-Baghdadi was actually in 2014. And a lot of people don't, don't realize this, but this is the last video that we see of him. It was uh, on July 4th of 2014. It was made during a prayer service during Ramadan, which is an Islamic holiday. And it shows al-Baghdadi speaking from like a pulpit in Arabic to a congregation in Mosul, which is a city in Iraq. And in this video, this is the video where he declared himself caliph. And he called on Muslims around the world to support him, to support his caliphate. And that is the last time we have seen a video of him. And that is actually pretty shocking when you think about it, because he has been the, the leader of the strongest terrorist group in the world, at least it was at one point in time. It's lost a lot of power now. But that's the last time we've seen him. Now, we have seen or we have had audio messages released, like taped messages of him claiming to be like the voice of Baghdadi. There was, there was one in 2014, a couple in 2015, uh, one in 2016 that cropped up, I think one in 17, one in 18, and then that's it. And these audio messages, some of them are debated as to whether or not it's actually him, but this is this video is a pretty unique thing. It's uh, the first time since declaring the caliphate. It was an 18-minute long video released by the Islamic State. So there are some questions here as to whether or not this is a recent video of him or whether, or whether or not they're just releasing it now. In the video, he is shown talking about recent events, uh, particularly losing, uh, he mentions a territory called Bagus Fakhani, which is uh, the kind of the last ISIS territory. They recently lost it. He talks about the Sri Lanka bombings, which just took place over Easter. He talks about uh, a couple different presidents who were overthrown. Uh, Al-Bashir in, in Sudan, Algeria had a president, uh, Bouteflika, I think his name was. And this means that the video was filmed within probably a week of it being released on April 29th. So the question is, why now? You know, why does he show his face now? I want to start by, by saying a couple things. First, there were some, some questions, or some, I should say, reasons to be skeptical that it's actually him. Been a long time since he's been seen, and there have actually been some recent reports of late questioning whether or not he's actually even still been alive. Partly might be why they released the video, but a lot of his top associates have been killed. And so there were some questions about whether or not it's actually him. Personally, I think the while those questions are valid, I, I don't think we can um, conclude that it's not. I, I think I think it is him. It does. It looks like him. It sounds like him. So then the question is, you know, why? And it appears really here that he's trying to send some sort of a message. Uh, in particular, there's been a lot of things that have changed since the last video. Obviously, the last video was him declaring the caliphate and kind of starting out, and the next few years gain territory, gain power, gain influence. But that's changed. And actually, just in the last couple months, ISIS has lost all of their territory. They lost territory in Iraq. They've lost territory in Syria. There's different groups trying to drive them out of 
the few pockets they've held left. They recently lost their last city. And so it's thought that Baghdadi is trying to kind of rally the troops again, basically trying to show that just because the group has lost virtually all of their territory, and again, any sort of formal territory is lost, but it's thought that he's trying to rally the troops and basically make the argument that just because they've lost this territory doesn't mean they're going away anytime soon, or that they're any less powerful, and that it can still continue to wage deadly warfare and can carry out these deadly attacks even without territory. As many of you know, I talked about the bombing in Sri Lanka. ISIS claimed responsibility for that, and it's thought they financed a lot of it. And ISIS at one point was the wealthiest terrorist group in the world. They were worth, I believe, $2 billion. And a very large percentage of that is still out there. We're not quite sure where it is, but we know ISIS still has control of a large portion of that money. And so they are capable of funding a lot of these things. And it's quite likely Baghdadi's reemergence is trying to reassure his troops and his his followers, not only in the Middle East, but also around the world, that they are still very capable. And so even though their caliphate of sorts across Iraq and Syria was a failure of sorts, and they've kind of been foiled in that plan, they do have a pretty extensive network of terror across the globe. Groups all around the world in Africa, Southeast Asia, others in the Middle East, individuals in other parts of the world have basically pledged allegiance. And so they have a fairly large terror network around the world too. And so seeing their leader kind of reemerge, again, he looks fairly healthy, uh, which has been questioned in the past as well. He looks very much in control. Uh, he has a, a pretty, you know, big rifle propped up next to him. He is you know, seated on the floor by himself. He looks strong, you know, relatively speaking anyway. And in the video, he is basically speaking with a couple different men uh, the other men in the video get have their faces kind of blocked out or covered in some way, shape, or form. But he's basically sitting there talking with them about some of these recent events. And in particular, he, he does kind of acknowledge defeat in terms of their territory, but he vows that there is, I'm going to quote here, a long battle ahead. And he mentions the word revenge in the video, claims Sri Lanka was revenge for a lot of this. And so he says, I'm going to quote again here, that the brothers of the fallen fighters will avenge that, as they will not forget as long as they have blood in their veins and there will be a battle after this one. And so he's, he's basically calling on his followers to stay strong and to continue to fight. But mostly the thought is that this video is about boosting morale. Uh, so he brags about some of their, their recent successes, various attacks across different countries. And it has to be a pretty big deal for him to come out right now because, as I said, he's probably the most wanted man in the world. He has a huge bounty on his head. There are multiple different players across the, actually across the world searching for him, including the United States, uh, the Russians, the Syrians, the Iraqis, the Kurds, other coalition forces. And so the risk he is taking here is quite great to show his face. And so it's obvious that he believes that whatever he's doing by releasing this video is very, very important. But as I said, this is a risk. And so let's talk a few minutes about like what we can learn from this video from like a counterterrorism perspective. Uh, so the first thing we can learn, I think this is, is pretty obvious, is that he is still alive. There have been a lot of reports over the years, including a couple recently, that he had been uh, killed. Uh, Russia in particular has mentioned that they thought they killed him at one point. So this has happened several, several times. And so obviously the first thing we learn is those reports are wrong. Uh, further, there have been other reports that if he is alive, he is uh, struggling. Talked about him being extremely thin. There's been some de some defectors from ISIS that have claimed he is extremely thin. Uh, he's you know gone white in you know, his hair. He is weak. And yet the video, he appears to be 
pretty healthy overall. He's he's actually heavier than we've seen him before, so he's gained weight. And in particular, he appears to be still firmly in control. He's presented as very strong. Uh, and so this is this is something else we can probably learn from the video is that he is still considered to be the leader of the organization. Now, it is important uh, to emphasize that in groups like this, that having some sort of strong control figure that can maintain discipline across the organization is, is very difficult. It's very complicated. And so to see him after five years still being presented as that firm head is, is really important. Moving beyond that, it gets kind of tricky. It was what we can actually learn from this. He's in a very bare location, enclosed. The other officials, their faces are obscured, so we can't track them. He is talking to them. They are not really talking back. They're just listening in silence. It's very simple, a very almost dry, boring style. And so there's not a whole lot we can learn directly about location here. Now, as we'll talk about in a minute, there are a couple of people who believe that they have been able to track certain elements of it, and I'll talk about that in a second. Now, the weapon that he is with is, is a very rare assault rifle. He has a kind of big rifle next to him. It's a Soviet AKS uh, 7.4U assault rifle, very large magazine. It doesn't stand out in any way for its you know usefulness, but it has a lot of symbolic value because it is the same weapon that Osama bin Laden used by al-Zarqawi, who was the, the founder of ISIS, technically. Uh, Baghdadi took over for al-Zarqawi. So Zarqawi used it, Osama bin Laden used it, and so this, this weapon ties him to the long lineage of extremist leaders in the region as well. And in fact, the video itself is very reminiscent of a similar video that Zarqawi put out uh, a couple years ago too, uh, just a few weeks before he actually was killed. Now, the timing of this is something else that we could probably learn a little bit from. Uh, as, as we talked about earlier, the group itself has lost a lot of territory, so there's probably a morale element here that he's trying to capitalize on, trying to, to rally the troops, so to say. It's also right before Ramadan, so there's a a holy celebration coming up for, for all of Islam, but a lot of these extremist groups will, will recognize that. And so right before Ramadan, the timing on that is probably important from a very religious perspective. And probably more importantly, from like a strategic perspective, there was a reported coup within ISIS just a few months ago. Now, the details on that are kind of iffy, but the fact that he is presented still as the strong leader shows that, that coup, whatever it actually amounted to was unsuccessful and that he is still able to impose his will across the organization and to and to operate as the leader. Now, there are probably a lot of technical things we could learn from the video as well. I'm not going to get into a lot of those right now, although I'll mention one in a second with with tracking him. But basically, it's important that this guy has been very reclusive for for years, I mean, half a decade. And this is a rare risk at a very unusual point in time. Uh, and the, the organization has undergone drastic changes since the last time we've seen him. And so it kind of actually raises some questions as to whether or not his methods will change too, if we're going to start seeing him more frequently, uh, because they need more morale boosting, or if this is the last we'll see of him for another five years, or and say until he's captured or something to that effect. Now, as I mentioned, there are some people who think they might be able to learn more from this video, and in particular have claimed that they were able to, to track him down. Now, it's been thought that he has been hiding out in somewhere in Iraq uh, for a while, possibly in Syria as well, but as the caliphate there kind of collapsed, it's believed that he fled. Now, where exactly he went has been up for, de up for debate. Uh, a lot of discussion going around about this. A lot of people don't know. Uh, actually, nobody really knows. But the thought is that he has been in eastern Afghanistan, in the, uh, the Khorasan province. 
And there's some reasons for this. Uh, one is that the the furnishings that he is is sitting on, the the bedding, the pillows in the room, appear to have a design feature to them that is particular to this this one region. That's obviously not proof of anything, but it is really interesting. And they believe that they can kind of start to narrow down where he might be based on some of these accoutrements that are also seen in the video with him. And in fact, uh, there's one leader who believes that they can narrow down his location to maybe four or five different places potentially that he is uh, based on this. And this is actually really important because we thought we had basically tracked him down to a, a particular region in Syria, but losing the territory there meant he had to flee. And so basically from like February on, we have basically completely lost sight of where he would be. Now, as I said, Afghanistan is one of these popular spots because of some of the, the bedding and the pillows around him, the designs there. There are some others, particularly some of the British, uh, the RAF, which is the Royal Air Force in Britain, believe they have reliable intelligence that points to have him being in Libya. And so they're actually working on, on checking out that intelligence as well. And so while this video does not tell us a lot, again, very bare bones, no windows, bare room, other than kind of a rug, a couple of pillows, his weapon, and himself, with these other three that he's talking to, there are some clues that may lend itself to giving us some, some more intelligence than we had before. And so the risk that he is taking by, by stepping out, emerging from his hole after all of these years, may present uh, a unique opportunity as well as we start to try to to narrow down where he could potentially be. Obviously, the uh, the time when we were tracking down Osama bin Laden took years. Obviously, it started under Bush. Uh, he wasn't actually found until Obama's tenure, so it took quite a few years there. It's likely al-Baghdadi will take some time as well. Even as the most wanted man in the world, he seems to have a, a um, an ability to stay hidden. But we're going to be keeping a very close eye on him because this, this recent appearance is unusual. And there are probably a lot of different reasons and things we can learn from this, both psychologically, methodologically, and even maybe geographically. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I think it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that is, I, th I would say, particularly fascinating to me. But it also, as we've seen ISIS kind of go through these changes, it's kind of an interesting capper on the story that five years ago they announced this caliphate, went through a whole cycle, and now that they've lost so much territory, we're seeing him emerge again. I think that's there's a lot of things we can learn from that, just from a psychological perspective, but probably more importantly from a counterterrorism perspective as we continue to fight uh, these battles and try to track down uh, al-Baghdadi, but also his followers and the organization as a whole to try to, to end a lot of the suffering that they've caused the people in that region. And so uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. If you're interested in getting in contact with me, my name is Justin Kinney. You can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any other conversation with you at that point in time. If you're interested in finding me on Facebook, I have a, a fiction author page called J. Robert Kinney. You can find me there. I write fiction novels. I have two mystery novels that are out, one called Precipice, one called Splintered State. Both are on Amazon under J. Robert Kinney. Uh, you can find them both there in paperback and in Kindle form. So check that out as well. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on the podcast, please get in touch with me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about those possibilities. 
Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and say goodbye, and I'll talk with you guys next week. So until then, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. <laughs>